Well, good evening. It has already been a wonderful day of worship here at Indian Hills. Uh, I hope you were uh, both encouraged and challenged by this morning's message. I hope you were able to get some rest between the services and certainly hope that you were encouraged by those baptisms and those testimonies. The work the Lord has done in those five hearts never ceases to amaze, does it? Well, this morning, uh, relying upon 2 Timothy 4.2, you heard the commitment that I'm making to you, dear church, as a pastor preacher. And that commitment, as you recall, was simply to preach the word. This evening, I'm going to close out my first day on the job, I guess you could say, by preaching a text that I think helpfully encapsulates another key responsibility I have to you. And a commitment I would like to make to you, which is to be a man who not only preaches God's word, but a man who pastors God's people. This evening, we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 12. This text, I would contend, characterizes, describes the true pastor, uh, the true shepherd, the nature of the characteristics that that man must have the commitment he must make, and the life he must demonstrate to the dear people that the Lord has allotted to his care. Pastors, of course, are to be examples to the flock. 1 Peter 5.3 says pastors are to be proving to be examples to the flock. And certainly one of the key ways, the primary ways that pastors do so is through their diligent teaching and preaching labors. They prove themselves exemplary through their diligent labor in the study in preparation for each and every Sunday. But for the pastor, for the true shepherd of God's flock, it is as important that he displays certain character traits as it is that he show competency in the study or eloquence in the pulpit. Paul told Timothy and all future generations of pastors in 1 Timothy 4.16 that he must pay close attention to yourself, it says, and to the teaching. Other translations say to your life and your doctrine. In other words, it's just as much about the walk that we walk as pastors as it is the talk that we talk. Shepherding is a perfect picture of pastoral ministry, a perfect term to describe pastoral ministry. Pastor shepherds tend sheep. They lead them and they feed them. They tend them and they protect them. And every once in a while, they give them a little rap on the head to make sure they don't go meandering off a cliff. Of course, the pastor shepherd leads his flock through the preaching of God's word and the building, up, up, building them up in sound doctrine But he also leads his flock by the example of his life, a life he lives in their midst. And so what we're going to see tonight is we're going to encounter the Apostle Paul describing the characteristics of his ministry to the beloved and faithful church in Thessalonica. Now, if you haven't already, I'd invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're going to read all the way from verse 1 down to 12. 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12 says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. 
For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. But we prove to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul wrote these words to the Thessalonian church likely somewhere around the year A.D. 51, while on his second missionary journey. And at this point, the church at Thessalonica was a young church and an inexperienced church. In fact, Paul had spent only a few short months with them, which was brief in comparison to the length of time he ministered in other places, such as Ephesus and Corinth. But though Paul's time with the Thessalonian church was brief, this was a fruitful time of shepherding because this church proved itself to be faithful early on. In fact, if you turn back the page to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we'll see a word from Paul about the faithfulness of this church. Look at 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 6. It says, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. That's a glowing report. If you could give a church a grade, the Thessalonian church would have received an A. This was a faithful church. Uh, such a faithful church that at the end of verse 8 here in chapter 1, Paul says, we have no need to say anything. What a great testimony. What a great witness. What a great legacy. Whatever Paul had done with this young church while in their midst before persecution drove him away to the next leg of his missionary journey, it was productive. It had worked. And this church was now thriving. But at the same time, there was concern Because this church was still in its infancy and there were these ever-present dual threats of both persecution and false teaching taking down this young church. Which is why Paul says in what he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 now, if you flip over a page or two to 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul starts looking ahead to this persecution or maybe the false teaching that could infiltrate this church and he gives this church some words of warning. 1 Thessalonians 4.1 says, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus, that as you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. 
Paul is charging this faithful church to continue in such a manner of living as to please God and to do so more and more. Now, apparently, there were some in Thessalonica who were calling into question Paul's shepherding credentials. Just as when you look at 2 Corinthians, there were some who were calling into question his apostolic credentials. And Paul gives his defense of his shepherding credentials here in 1 Thessalonians 2, our text for this evening. And it's from this defense that Paul gives in this text that we've already read that we're going to be extracting several points, points of pastoral application, points of pastoral emphasis. And I'm going to run through these pretty quickly tonight as I unpack my commitment to you to be a pastor who pastors God's people. And I'm going to run through these quickly because there are 17 of these points. So I preached three words this morning. I'm going to preach 17 points tonight. Don't tell the nursery workers. We may be out of here, hopefully by about 10, 1030. All right. The first point is this. The pastor is known. If you're a note taker, that'll be our first point. The pastor is known. We pick that up in verse 1 of chapter 2, where he says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. You yourselves know. Paul is saying here to this church that had become so dear to him in such a short period of time, you know how we behaved. You know who we are. You know how we conducted ourselves. And this isn't the first or only time Paul says something like this in this text. You might have caught the other times he says it in chapter 2 here. In verse 1, you yourselves know. Verse 2, as you know. Verse 9, for you recall. Verse 11, just as you know. The entirety of this chapter is marked with these reminders that the church at Thessalonica had experiential knowledge of the way that Paul had provided for them and cared for them in his ministry to them. They witnessed his care for them when he was in their midst. So it could truly be said that Paul knew them and they knew him and they knew of his care for them. Paul's example here is a great example, a great pattern for all ministers of the Lord Jesus Christ to follow. And certainly it's a great pattern for men who are called by God to the office of pastor overseer. Pastors are to be men who are present, men who are active in the life of the body, men who are available, men who are known. Here's the second one. The pastor pours into his people. The pastor pours into his people. Look at what Paul says at the end of verse 1. He says, our coming to you was not in vain. Paul had initially come to Thessalonica to preach the gospel and proclaim the word to this thoroughly paganized region of the then known world. He didn't come like so many modern day missionaries to punch his passport, to build wells or greenhouses, or to sprinkle a little bit of Jesus on top of what really was a holiday at sea. No, Paul traveled to Thessalonica to preach the gospel and proclaim God's word. We see this in 1 Thessalonians 1.5. If you flip the page back to verse 5 of chapter 1, he says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. In other words, the power of the gospel was in full display in Thessalonica as a harvest of souls was won to Jesus Christ. 
We see that also in chapter 1, verse 9, where he says, For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. These former pagans and idolaters had repented and believed in the gospel. That's what he's saying. But not only did Paul win many souls in Thessalonica to Christ, he built them up in their faith. He invested in them. He developed them. He poured into them. He gave them an example worth following. In fact, staying there in chapter 1, look at verse 6. He says, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord. And as we're going to see as we go through chapter 2 tonight, he cared for them. He gave them instructions, chapter 4, verse 1, as to how they ought to walk and please God. He also, when he could no longer be with them, according to chapter 3, verse 2, sent Timothy, it says, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. And of course, he continued to pray for these dear people. If you look at 1 Thessalonians 1, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Like Paul, a true shepherd not only spends time with his flock, he pours into his flock and he develops them. He realizes his ministry is not his. He realizes that the church is not his. He realizes that the people of the church are not his. And then he realizes that whatever position or influence he has through his position is a stewardship from God. And that one of the key responsibilities he has is to leverage his position and influence to advance the cause of the gospel of Christ. To build up the body that is now before him. To equip and pour into the next generation. So he invests in men. He invests in the next wave of up and coming men and leaders in the church. He equips and trains the saints. Not only in the pulpit but with all of his life. He echoes Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 12.15. Which says I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. Here's the third one. The pastor endures despite opposition. The pastor endures despite opposition. Look at verse 2 of chapter 2. We're back in 1 Thessalonians. He says, But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. See, Paul and his companions, they, they were abused and beaten up. On your own time, look at Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 9, for the full account of what happened there when Paul and his companions went to Thessalonica. But despite the opposition they faced, they had boldness in their speech. Paul and his companions kept on preaching the gospel from house to house, from city to city. See, suffering is part of the life of the true shepherd. That might be why they say, never trust a pastor who doesn't have a limp. But the true shepherd of God's flock endures. He endures when angry haters of God protest outside of his church. He endures when he receives threats at his home because of what he said in the pulpit last Sunday. He endures when government authorities seek to prevent his church from assembling. 
He endures when government authorities seek to stop him from heralding truth from God's word. He endures when other pastors in his community go soft, woke, or liberal. He endures when unsound teaching begins to infiltrate the church. He endures when some in the congregation get swept away with ear-tickling teaching. He endures when unfounded rumors about him or his family begin making their way through the church grapevine. He endures when he starts seeing scowls and folded arms on Sunday morning. He endures when he starts receiving complaints or unkind letters from the church body. He endures when people in the church start leaving the church because they just don't like him. He endures when people compare him, rightly or wrongly, to this guy or that guy, to this preacher or that preacher. He endures when old friends abandon him. He endures when those who seem to have had the most love for him in the beginning express the most vitriol toward him in the end. He endures when he receives direct, indirect overtures from the temptress. He endures when sleep eludes him. He endures when health fails him. He endures when his family misses him. He endures to the end. Knowing that he's not seeking or pursuing the accolades of this world, knowing that what 1 Peter 5, 4 says, when the chief shepherd appears, that's when he'll receive the unfading crown of glory. Paul had an endurance that allowed him to stay true to his ministry. Gil certainly had that endurance here at Indian Hills. Please pray that I would have that endurance as well. Here's the fourth one. The pastor is committed to purity of doctrine. Purity of doctrine. Look at verse 3. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by, or by way of deceit. In other words, Paul's words were always motivated by the pursuit of truth and accuracy. He was singularly focused on getting it right before he opened his mouth and started dispensing words to people. And so must be any shepherd, true shepherd of God's flock. The pastor must work diligently in the study until he gets it right. Now, that doesn't mean that you have the right to case the church parking lot to make sure I'm here till at least two in the morning every night. Uh, That doesn't mean you get to park outside my house on Saturday nights to see what time the lights finally go out. But it does mean that you have the right to expect of me that I will be a shepherd who works tirelessly, fiercely, and uncompromisingly to unpack the single meaning of each text of scripture that we work through over the years. And which prayerfully what that will mean is that you will, have, you will, as you have in the past, receive that rich, steady diet week over week of biblical truth, both to understand and to live out. I know you know this at this church especially, but there really is a famine in the land. To borrow a phrase from Amos chapter 8 verse 11, there's a famine of truth. There's a famine, sadly, that extends to American pulpits. It is truly surprising and sad how passive so many pastors have gotten as it relates to the truth, shying away from the truth, staying on the fringes of truth, hovering around the truth, but never really diving into the truth and proclaiming the truth and challenging people with the truth. It's also sad how doctrinally shallow, if not ignorant, so many who call themselves pastors are. Pastors who couldn't give a worthy defense of six-day creationism. 
Pastors who couldn't explain what penal substitutionary atonement is and why it's important. Pastors who have no position on eschatology and who mask their ignorance about that important topic with the old tagline, all I know is that Jesus wins in the end. Pastoral training and education has taken a proven nosedive in recent years. You know, the credit hours for the basic Master of Divinity degree have decreased all across the board. Training in the original languages, Hebrew and Greek, is becoming less and less mandatory and more and more optional in the modern-day seminary. And the overall rigor of the process for training men for ministry and their fitness for pastoral ministry is waning significantly. The result of that is that impure doctrine and outright false teaching continues to infiltrate the church. I don't need to say much more. You can go look at the most recent Lifeway or Ligonier survey of the American church to see the terrifying results of what people out there in the pews believe in the modern American church landscape. You have my commitment, not only through the training I have received, but through the lifetime of study I intend to do to diligently protect the purity of the doctrine that is held to and taught here at Indian Hills. In fact, next week in one of the sermons I'll give, I'm going to be preaching from Titus 1.9, which talks about holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that I will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. That's four, 13 to go. Here's five. The pastor understands the source of his call. The pastor understands the source of his call. He understands that he has a high calling. That's verse four here. Look at chapter two, verse four. But just as we have been approved by God. Now the word approved here, dokimazo, is in the perfect tense. Meaning that something that happened in the past that has implications in the present. God set apart prophets in the Old Testament times to do his work. God set apart and approved Paul here and other early ministers of Christ as apostles. Paul didn't approve himself. Paul didn't fill out an application to become an apostle. No, God made him one. And in a similar manner, God approves men to be pastors in our day. We see that in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Paul's infamous farewell address to the Ephesian elders where he says to those elders, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Did you catch it? The Holy Spirit made those men to be overseers. The Holy Spirit makes a man a pastor. You're not a pastor if you're a self-appointed watchman. You're not a pastor if your only shepherding happens on social media of all your followers and friends. You're not a pastor because your dad and your granddad were pastors or because you had a sweet old aunt who thought you'd make a great pastor. No, you're a pastor if you've been made a pastor by God as recognized by the elders of your church who see that you desire the work, who affirm that you're competent to do the work, and who recognize that God has called you to do the work. The pastor does no mere day job. The pastorate is a divine call. Here's number six. The pastor is courageous. Picking up in verse four after he says, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, then he says, so we speak, not as pleasing men, 
but God who examines our hearts. Pastors speak courageously. They speak for God, by God, and on behalf of God. They preach the word, not because they have anything to say, but because this book gives them something to say. So we speak, it says. But look at why pastors say what they say. Look at the motivation behind pastoral speech. Paul says he's not looking to please man, but rather God who examines our hearts. He's not looking to win men with his speech, with his compelling oratory, with his clear diction, with his catchy words. Rather, in his speech, he is looking to please God. He gives similar sentiments, Paul does, in other parts of the New Testament, like Galatians 1.10, where he says, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Man-pleasing ultimately stems from fear of man, which is sin. God-pleasing ultimately stems from the fear of the Lord, which is the only holy and righteous way to live. We don't speak to please men, but instead our aim and our objective always is to please God. That applies to all of us in this room this evening. I am called to preach this book, to build my life around this book, to shepherd our church in the direction of greater and greater faithfulness to this book. And as I said this morning, that's what I'm going to do so long as I'm behind this pulpit. If people leave, so be it. If negative online reviews are posted about me or our church online, so be it. If some lunatic storms our worship center and starts firing at me because of something I said about transgenderism or homosexuality or the Muslim faith, so be it. So we speak, not as pleasing men, it says, but God who examines our hearts. Here's number seven. The pastor shoots straight. The pastor shoots straight. Look at verse five. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know. If there is someone in history who is capable of turning a phrase or impressing someone with his speech simply based on his sheer brilliance and intellect, it was Paul. But he refused to use such means. He didn't want to just sound intellectual or eloquent to please a crowd. No, we know about Paul from 1 Corinthians 2, too, that he was determined to know nothing among other people except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul wasn't going to flatter anyone for the sake of impressing anybody. In fact, the definition of flattery is saying something to somebody's face that you wouldn't say behind their back. Gossip is sort of the inverse of that, saying something behind somebody's back that you'd never say to their face. Paul was no flatterer. No, Paul was committed to clarity and boldness and directness. In your own time, survey the second half of the book of Acts and you'll see exactly what I mean. That's why he could say here, we never came with flattering speech. See, pastors really have to work against this tendency toward flattery. You know, on the one hand, as we're going to talk about in a minute, we really do want our people to know that we love them. 
But that expression has to be from a sincere and pure heart. Not because I want you to nod approvingly at everything I say up here. Not because I want you to scribble down furiously all 17 points of my brilliant sermon tonight. No, not because I want you to like me or never leave Indian Hills. That can't be my motivation. I've been around those type of pastors. Maybe you have too. The pastors who will do anything or say anything just to get people to stay, especially those people that write big checks. Not me. What I say will be said on the authority of God's word. Both when I'm behind this pulpit, but equally when I'm meeting you for lunch. And we'll just let the chips fall where they may. I will be saying what I say not to please you. I will be saying what I say instead to please God who commissioned me to serve you in this role. Here's number eight. The pastor is content. Pastor is content. Continuing on in verse five, after he says, we never came with flattering speech, he says, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. See, greed is desiring more than you are due. But getting down to the heart level, greed is actually not the root level sin. The root level sin is actually lack of contentment. Or discontentment, you could say it that way. And we see discontentment all around us, don't we? We see the child who wants the bigger cookie. Or at least the cookie that's as big or bigger than what his brother or sister got. We want the bigger yard. Or at least a yard that's as big or bigger than what our, our neighbor has. We've had to experience that when we got here. We love our new home, but then everybody else here has an acreage. And we're like, wow, that's a lot of land. Well, sadly, that sense of discontentment can infect pastors as well. We want a bigger building. We want a building. We want more people. We want the invite to be the plenary speaker at the conference. We want to write for this blog or write that article or write for that journal. We eventually want to move from that medium-sized city like Lincoln to the big city like Chicago or St. Louis or Dallas. Not Paul. With God as his witness, he says he came with no pretext for greed. He wasn't in it for the money. He wasn't in it for the accolades. Rather, he found his true joy and his true contentment in knowing that Christ was being proclaimed and in knowing that Christ was being formed in these dear people. He says something similar in Philippians 1.18, where he says, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. That's true joy. That's true contentment. Now, when in ministry, you can get caught up in the way that people think about you as a minister. But the reality is everyone, men and women, shepherd and sheep, elders and deacons, preachers and preach too, we all want to be liked. I'm no different. I'm no exception. But what I'm telling you tonight and pledging before you tonight is that my ministry will not be marked by and it will not be motivated by a desire to please you. Albert Martin, sort of pastor to pastors, says this, it is only the man who is freed from the shackles of seeking the praise of his fellow mortals who will be free to be used by God in shepherding and overseeing God's people. He's absolutely right. Rather, the pastor's main motivation, my main motivation, is to please God by serving you for your 
spiritual benefit for your spiritual good. Christ is proclaimed, Philippians 1.18, and in this I rejoice. Here's number nine. The pastor does not abuse his authority. The pastor does not abuse his authority. Look at verse six. Nor did we seek, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. See, Christian ministry is all about people, working with people. If a man doesn't want to deal with people, he needs to get out of Christian ministry and go work in a boiler room somewhere, apply to be a park ranger. Pastors necessarily must be relational people if they are going to be effective shepherds of Christ's flock. But what Paul says here in verse 6 is so important. Though a pastor is to be a relational person, he is not to be quick to swing the big stick of influence in his dealings with his people. Sure, there are times where he must exercise his God-given authority when he preaches, when he prays, when he practices the church ordinances. But he does not get to pull the pastor card in each and every social encounter he finds himself in. Yes, the, uh, the very right and reverend Jesse Randolph and his bride would like a, a table for two at venue tonight, please. No, that's not how it works. What else does he say here, though? He says, even though we might have asserted our authority. But then verse 7 begins with this adversative conjunction where he says, but, meaning on the other hand, but we prove to be gentle among you, which leads Paul into this family-based illustration. In other words, Paul, as an apostle, could have wielded his position and his authority as an apostle to, 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 to leverage it over the people under his care, but he didn't. Paul could have pulled the authority card and hammered on this early church to get what he wanted out of them, to move them in the direction that he wanted them to move, but he didn't. You know, in other contexts in scripture, we actually do see Paul bringing down his authoritative apostolic hammer on people. You know, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? But he didn't do it in every setting. Nor, in our context, our modern context, does the pastor have to bring down the hammer in every situation imaginable. I hope I can explain this by use of a very simple illustration. That of the family. In my home, just like any other husband or father, I have a position of, of spiritual authority. I'm the spiritual head of my wife, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. I'm the head and protector of our family. Now, I could lead my family by sheer blunt force of my position of authority. Conceivably, I could do that. But is that as effective as sheathing my God-given authority in the form of loving and caring relationships with each member of my household? Of course not. In fact, I have a story to tell you, and it ties to our move here to Nebraska. Some of you have heard this in, in more intimate settings. Early on in the process, when, when I first heard of this opportunity, I wrote a letter to my wife. You know, there was this church in Lincoln, Nebraska that had been pastored by this man very faithfully for all these decades. And, you know, I, I know my wife. I know what she loves and what some of her preferences are. And, 
you know, we were drawing up plans on our whiteboard at home. Maybe go to Texas, maybe go to Arizona, one of those warm weather states, but more conservative, you know. And I said, Nebraska, that's not Texas. That's not Arizona. That's not as warm as I thought we would be, (laughs) the state that we'd be led to. So I actually wrote a letter to my wife. I'm sure I have it somewhere. I'm not going to put it up on the screen. Don't worry. If I recall correctly, it was an 11-point letter. Again, former lawyer, four pages, single-spaced. And all it was was me explaining, appealing, reasoning as to why we had to at least consider this opportunity. It wasn't me wielding the hammer and saying, full speed ahead to Lincoln and Indian Hills. Get behind me, wife. No. I appealed to her. I sought her buy-in. I sought her investment into the decision that I believed I needed to make on behalf of our family. And the rest is history. But back to our text. Paul says, I could have, but I didn't. Then he lays out for us in this highly relational language how he instead chose to care for, invest in, and shepherd this dear church in Thessalonica. Look at verse 7. He says, but we proved to be. Let's just stop right there at we proved to be. That's actually our 10th marking here. Pastor is consistent. We prove to be. This language demonstrates consistency. This is an aorist tense verb, meaning simply, this happened. Meaning Paul proved through his consistency to be a particular way with this early church at Thessalonica. And one of the greatest problems we face in the church today, not just with pastors, but with members, is inconsistency. We all have gone through those phases. I know we have in this room where we're all fired up about this or that. But then we fail to follow through days or weeks or months later. We're all charged up about our Bible reading plans. We're charging the hills of Genesis in January only to die in the lowlands of Leviticus by February. Right? You don't have to admit it right now. It's okay. Evangelism programs, right? They start ramping up around the time of the the beginning of the school year or at the start of the new ministry year or when the new pastor comes to town only to evaporate within a year or two. We start off all bright-eyed and resolved like Jonathan Edwards, but then we end up all droopy-eyed and sad like Eeyore. You're not going to have a lasting impact on anyone. And as a pastor, I'm not going to have a lasting impact on anyone without consistency, without steadiness, without a firm hand on the steering wheel. The consistent pastor doesn't slip or slide when the going gets tough, when the road gets bumpy, when the eyes get heavy. No, the pastor acts consistently, and his consistency is proven over time. Here's number 11. The pastor is gentle. Keeping on with verse 7, he says, But we prove to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. The word gentle here is literally translated mild. The idea here is of being sensitive or perceptive or attentive And the word cares here literally means, in verse 7, to warm by your presence. The imagery here is, is undeniable. How does a nursing mother deal with her child gently, with great care? In that act of nursing her child, who does the mother care about more, herself or the child? The answer is obvious. The idea here in verse 7 is of that shepherd who is paying attention to the needs of and meeting the needs of the people. Paul had that sort of deep connection and sweet sensitivity toward the Thessalonian church. And modern day pastors are called to have that same connection with their people. 
Now, gentleness, of course, is a fruit of the Spirit. But the opposite of gentleness is harshness. Now, there will be times, I can guarantee it, from up here, where what I say may come across as harsh. Maybe it's even happened tonight. Maybe it happened this morning. As I'm preaching God's word, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, it is bound to cut and convict and pinch and hurt. That's all legitimate. But what I don't have the right to do is to come up here because I had a bad week, all grumpy and angry with an agenda of my own, kicking the pulpit and just kind of acting out. I don't have the right to hammer on you, to yell at you, or to vent my own frustration or anger toward you. No, I, as your shepherd, I'm called to be gentle toward you. Not harsh, not hostile, not angry. Here's number 12. The pastor smells like the sheep. Keeping on with verse 7. We prove to be gentle. We, we kind of read through these quickly before. We prove to be gentle among you. Among you. The pastor smells like his sheep. The priority of the pastor is to be with the people. To be with them physically. To be with them presently. Paul says, I was among you. Which can be translated, I was in the midst of you. He was present physically. He was there. See, ministers who make an impact among their people are with their people. They're listening. They're asking questions. They don't have their noses buried in their phones. Their their minds aren't drifting. They're not thinking about the next article I'm going to write. They don't see themselves always as being nothing but a biblical mouthpiece anywhere they go. Rather, they engage with the people that they're called to shepherd and care for. They make eye contact contact with the people they love. They pay attention to them. They're quick to listen to their people. They're slow to speak toward their people. They rejoice with their people. They weep with their people. They mourn with their people. They grieve with their people. See, the greatest lesson I have imparted to my children have not been taught when I propped up a podium in my living room. No, the greatest lessons I've taught each of my children have been at the foot of their bed on a a daddy-daughter date night, at the end of the bench, or at the dinner table. So it is with the people of God here at Indian Hills. Primarily, of course, my job, as I said this morning, is to feed and teach you the word of God. But do you know what I'm also charged to do? I'm charged to invest in you, to get to know you, to care for you, to shepherd you, to show interest in you, to tend to you. And that's fully what I intend to do. You know, I don't send out Sunday evening calls to go to Culver's because I need another cheeseburger. I really don't. By the way, we're going tonight, so if anyone wants to go, meet us at Culver's afterwards. Somebody let them know, okay? No, I send out the calls to go to Culver's to be around people, to be around you, the people of God that God has entrusted with me behind this pulpit. I need to be a shepherd who smells like the sheep. Here's number 13. The pastor loves the sheep. Look at verse 8. The pastor loves the sheep. He says, having so fond an affection for you. Now that word fond for affection is a hapax legomena. Meaning it's the only time we see this term used in scripture. We have to go to other sources outside scripture, other Greek texts to get a sense of what is meant here. And what we find is that this word means a deep longing or yearning 
even when words aren't involved. There's a synonymous term used in Luke 15 in the account of the prodigal son where it says that he, the prodigal son, was starving and longing even for the food that the pigs ate. That's the idea here. A longing. Uh, This is more than the words, I love you, being verbalized. This is the, the, the idea, I love you, being lived out and felt. If you ever lost a child at an amusement park, like we did with our son Noah about eight years ago, you know that feeling of longing, that sense of that pit forming in your stomach, that sinking feeling as you're scanning the crowd, hoping, praying to be reunited with them quickly. That's that idea of of longing, yearning. Or maybe you've lost a child in the ultimate sense, a child who has passed already from this life to the next. What is it that you feel? You long for them. You yearn to be reunited with them. You want to be with them again. That's the idea here in this passage. A foundational ingredient of pastoral ministry is yearning to be with your people because you love them. And they know it. And everyone knows it. And there's not even words that need to be said to express it. Having so fond an affection for you, he says in verse 8. And then at the end of verse 8, he says something similar. Because you had become very dear to us. I need, as your pastor, not only to love you, I need to make sure that you know that I love you. I mean, right now I'm just working through names in the church directory, but I promise we'll we'll get there. Number 14, the pastor shares with his sheep. The pastor shares with his sheep. Continuing on in verse 8, he says, We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives Paul shared of himself both spiritually and personally. He shared not only the gospel of God, it says, but he shared his own life. Of course, every week I'll be sharing with you spiritually from this pulpit. And as you're going to hear me say in one of the sermons I'll preach next weekend, I am committed to preaching the gospel clearly, boldly, and regularly from this pulpit and any other aspect of ministry the Lord gives me here at Indian Hills. But what you can also expect of me is that I'm going to share with you personally. Not everything that you're going to hear coming out of my mouth, whether in the lobby or if we go have dinner one of these days, is going to be a Bible lesson or a devotional. No, I'm called to share my very life with you, which is what I intend to do. Does this mean that I'll be at every one of your kids' ball games? Can't say that. I'm hoping to make it all my kids' ball games. But does this mean that I'll share meals with you? Does this mean I'll visit with you in the lobby on on a Sunday until they kick me out or kick you out? Does this mean that I'll visit with you when we bump into each other at Home Depot? Does this mean that I'm committed to building a life here in Lincoln shoulder to shoulder with you? Absolutely. Here's 15. The pastor serves the sheep. Look at verse 9. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Pastor shepherds sweat for their sheep by serving them sacrificially. Labor here refers to to sweat on, on the brow. It refers to toil. 
And then hardship there in verse 9 refers to pain, which accompanies toil. Pastors work hard for their sheep. They ought to work hard for their sheep. I intend to give my life away for this ministry, to be spent for the saints of this body, not for the sake of my former church, not for the sake of some other church on 84th Street, not for the sake of the seminary I graduated from, not for the sake of any ministry affiliations or groups I'm associated with, not for the sake of some parachurch organization. No, this church. I intend to spend the remaining days of my life loving my wife, loving and training my children, and spending and being spent for the benefit of the body at Indian Hills. That's it. That's the game plan. That's verse 9 summarized. Here's number 16. The pastor is sincere toward the sheep. Verse 10, you are witnesses, and so is God. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. Paul modeled credibility and integrity for the people he ministered to here in Thessalonica. He was living proof of the truths he proclaimed. He modeled true character and virtue to them. His faith was alive and vibrant and real. He wasn't some professional, polished, hollow theologian. No, he was a zealous follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, pastor is is not my job description or my title. It's not some title I'm trying to throw in a resume. It's the very passion of my life. A, A pastor does not mean to be an egghead, all head knowledge with no heart. That's what the academy is for. No, to be a pastor is is not about having all form but no substance. No, to be a pastor means to have a living and active and abiding relationship with the living God, which overflows into every area of the man's life. That's what Paul's talking about here when he's using the word devoutly. Next, though, is the word uprightly. In verse 10, he says uprightly. That refers to someone who does the right things. He's given a task, then he does that task faithfully and honorably. For the pastor, that means he's not cutting corners in his preparation of his Sunday sermons. He's not committed to preparing the old Saturday night special. He's not ripping off sermons from other preachers online and passing them off as his own. No, he performs his duties uprightly. And then in this last one, there's this word blamelessly in verse 10. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly, he says. Blamelessly simply means above reproach. He's of good reputation. He's trustworthy. And that, of course, is the charge that the Lord has laid on the lives of all pastors everywhere in other places in Scripture, like in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, which says an overseer must be above reproach. The pastor not only preaches it, he models it. He lives it. Number 17, the pastor prods the sheep. Verses 11 and 12, he prods the sheep. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The pastor is not a sideline sitter. He's not a wallflower. No, as, as a shepherd through prayer and through example and through his words, he challenges those whom he has been given to shepherd. 
We see that in the three verbs here given in verse 11. First, exhorting, encouraging, and imploring. Look at exhorting. The word here, exhorting, in verse 11 is parakaleo. That literally means to call alongside. Kaleo means to call. Para means alongside. To call alongside. In the context of pastoral leadership, this means to influence by way of example. To call alongside someone to your side to show them by example how you're already living. What you're already doing. You're asking them to do what you're already doing. You're leading them credibly and you're leading them believably. It picks up what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1 1, where he says, Be imitators of me as I also am of Christ. And then the next verb is encouraging. Now that's a motivational word. That's a, that's a, a cheer them up word. This word means to encourage someone in such a manner so that they do not quit. To comfort them so that they do not despair. And that word, don't try to spell this, is paramutheomai. It's in the present tense. It's in the middle voice. And it means that you're doing something regularly. And it's something you're doing regularly, not for your own benefit, but for the benefit of others. I can't help but think of my wife when I think of that word. She is such an incredible encourager. Each and every Sunday night, sometimes Monday morning, when I'm a bit down and thinking about how the sermon, including this one, could have been better, she'll walk by, she'll put her hand on my shoulder, she'll give me something sweet or caffeinated, she'll tell me I'm handsome, and then she'll encourage me to go back out there and get after it next week. That's encouragement. The last verb we see here in verse 11 is imploring. The Greek term there is marturomai. You might hear the word martyr in it. It means, marturomai, to bear witness, to convince another persuasively, to encourage them to do what you are doing, which they've seen and encountered in you or witnessed in you firsthand as you seek to act faithfully. And then there are these words that could be very easy to miss in verse 11, where down after he says, exhorting and encouraging and imploring, he says, each one of you. Exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you. I did these things individually to you and for you as though each one of you were my own children. And then look at the the focus in verse 12. So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul's was a personal ministry. It was a one-on-one ministry. And to be effective here as a pastor, my ministry needs to be personal too. And I can assure you that it will be personal, which all I can say is you'll see fleshed out over time. Well, I love preaching. And Lord willing, one day I may even be good at it. But the reality is there's a lot more to pastoral ministry than preaching. In fact, to summarize our our 17 points from tonight's message, I'll just read them off real quick, rapid fire, in case you missed any. The pastor is known. The pastor pours into people. The pastor endures despite opposition. The pastor is committed to purity of doctrine. The pastor understands the source of his call. The pastor is courageous. The pastor shoots straight. The pastor is content. The pastor doesn't abuse his authority. The pastor is consistent. The pastor is gentle. The pastor smells like sheep, the pastor loves the sheep, the pastor shares with the sheep, the pastor serves the sheep, the pastor is sincere toward the sheep, the pastor prods 
the sheep. These points I've laid out for you tonight are nothing about me or me tooting my own horn. Uh, Far from it. Uh, Because the reality is no pastor, yours truly included, does each of these things perfectly. Though it's certainly our aim, as Paul said, to excel still more. I, like any pastor, need the help of God to grow in each one of these areas. So as I asked you this morning, I'm going to ask you again tonight for your prayers. It is my duty and my joy as your pastor to pray for each of you, but I also ask that you would pray for me to be this kind of man, to be this kind of pastor, to be this kind of shepherd. We had a three-word sermon this morning. We've made it through 17-point sermon this evening. Shall we call it a day? Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you again for your word and the truth it contains, for the character of God that it reveals, for the hope that we have in Christ that it showcases, for the eternity that awaits that we know is there. And we thank you for this day in the word. I thank you for these dear people who have come out for the evening service to hear your truth proclaimed. I pray that you would instill in me each of these virtues that Paul lays out of the true minister of the gospel and that I would excel still more. I pray for everybody here. We all have to live out these characteristics. We all, there's a sense in which we all are called to live this way in the body of Christ. And I pray that when you return for your church, this church would be found to be that church that models these traits that we have looked through tonight. I pray each member of the body here would have a fruitful and productive week in the Lord, that they would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and find increasing joy in him and his appearing and that you would find each member here faithful as we await your return. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.